the rule book says it like this. The relay, the relay baton is a smooth, hollow, one-piece tube made of wood, metal, or another rigid material. It measures between 28 and 30 centimeters long and between 12 and 13 centimeters in circumference. The baton must weigh at least 50 grams. The baton can only be passed within the exchange zone. And you can put that first picture up there and just sort of maybe show the next two uh, in a bit of a rotation, Darren. The exchange zone, which is 20 meters long, exchange is made outside the zone based on the position of the baton, not the runner's feet, result in disqualification. Passers must remain in their lanes after the pass to avoid blocking other runners. The baton must be carried by hand. If it is dropped... The runner can leave the lane to retrieve the baton as long as the recovery doesn't lessen his or her total running distance. Runners may not wear gloves or place substances on their hands to obtain a better grip on the baton. No stickum here, people. As you look at those pictures and listen to that rule book description, perhaps your heart races a little bit like mine does. If you've watched the Olympics, if you've watched the track and field world championships, if you've watched a high school track and field meet, you know there is, there is no more tense, pressure-packed moment in a track and field event then the baton pass of the relay. Not just the relay, whether it's a 4 by 100 where they, each runner runs 100 meters or the 4 by 400 where they each make a lap, but the specific 20 meters in which that baton is passed. I watched some YouTube clips this week of some baton passes that went very, very well and success was generated, and the teams won or placed high and received medals in the relay. And don't do it now, friends, but later, YouTube this, and you can find some baton passes that did not go. I see a bunch of you looking at your phones. Come on, people. No, uh, no, it's fine. Um, Some baton passes that did not go too well. In fact, they went terribly wrong. And and runners had to start back and walk together back into the passing zone while other teams were finishing the relay and they're still trying to get the handoff. And I just, I think about these, these Olympic caliber athletes in particular who have been training for years and working together for months and fine-tuning their individual skills. But in a, in a sense, it all comes down to this 20 meters, three times over, these 60 meters of space in which the baton must be passed 
three times successfully. And if it isn't, then the whole relay falls apart. We've seen it, right? We've seen it. It's intense. And, and, and again, good baton passes can propel teams to great victory. Bad ones can result in lasting, I mean, lifelong lasting disappointment and failure. I was thinking about this this week. And you can go back to the title slide, Darren. Because in many ways, our study of the books of First and Second Timothy over the last several weeks, a couple of months, in a series that we've been calling Foundations, Built to Last, has been about a baton pass. It's been about um, a baton pass, this time not between two runners, but between two generations, really. Specifically, two generational leaders, the Apostle Paul, who we've heard a lot about, and his young protege in ministry, Timothy, who's coming after Paul in leadership in the church. And, and, and we've got this incredible sense as we've read these passages, as we've thought about some of the most core and fundamental foundational beliefs and practices and experiences that there are to be understood in the church. We've gotten this sense that Paul has run his 100 meters, or he's made his lap, and he's ready to hand it off to the one who will ne come next, Timothy. But th these letters have, in a sense, been that 20 meters <laughs> in, in which I've got to make sure I, got the, I get this baton correctly and powerfully and beautifully to the one who's coming after me. I've got to get it to Timothy well. And, and in a sense, these Letters have been Timothy and, and the, the scriptures in general, God's attempt, if you will, to make sure that that, that that baton that was passed from Paul to Timothy and on into that early church is indeed being passed on to us. We're, we're up next. We're the ones that will run the next hundred meters. We're the ones that will take our turn. And are we receiving? Our, how, how is that transition? How's that handoff? Maybe we're at the 10 meter mark and it's slipping a little bit out of our hands. And the person in front of us is starting to run away from us. So we're crowding up on them and it's tense and it's, it's, it's significant. But we're wanting so badly to see the baton passed so that even as we think about college students this morning, that, that generations that we're a part of and generations that are coming beyond, behind us, even our children and children's church, that they're going to receive the baton, this, these foundations of the faith, that, that this faith will be built to last and they'll be able to run freely and with strength for years and years to come. So one last passage today from 2 Timothy and we're moving on. This is it for foundations. It, it, we better hope it stands strong after this. But this one from 2 Timothy chapter 4. And um, Timothy, again, before you look there, um, he, he's writing from, from prison. And we've been talking about that. And, and it's clear as we read these words that he is 
very aware that his days are numbered, that his, the, the end of his life is imminent. And, and so he wants to be sure to extend his own life now as an example for Timothy and for others to follow, and his own life as an encouragement for those who would come after him as they live on into the mission of God and to be faithful to it. So here we go, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let's stand together, can we, as I read this for us, beginning at verse 6 and reading 6 through 8 and then jumping down to verses 16 through 18. As for me, Paul writes, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death, maybe the better word there, the original word is departure. I don't know what some of your translations say, but the time of my departure, the time of my transition is near. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. And then jumping down to verse 16. The first time I was brought before the judge... No one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and gave me strength so that I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear. And He rescued me from certain death. Yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, it's not uncommon, again, for people at the end of their lives who are face, who, or who are facing an ominous medical diagnosis to have a sharpened perspective, a, a, a new and deep awareness of the significance of life. It's often been said that as people come to the end of their lives, no one ever says, I wish I'd spent more time at the office, right? You, you've heard that said, well, I wish I would have just put in a few more hours at the office. And that's not usually what people are thinking as they come to the end of life. It's in these moments where there is clarity about what is most important, about what is most significant, and what a person would do more of if given a second chance. And you can have this sense that Paul writes with this clarity in this passage. It's right down to it, and it's like, here it is, Timothy. This is all I got. This is what I have, and this is what is most important to me. And not only to me, but in my sense of things that you can hear Paul sort of suggesting is that this is what's most important, period. What's most important for us. Here's an assessment of his life and of his mission as they're both drawing to a close now and a clear testimony to his confidence in the Lord. 
and to the faithful completion of the work that God was doing in his own life. He had written earlier, uh, faithful is he to complete the good work that he has begun in you. And there's this sense that Paul is sensing God bringing this to a completion as he nears his departure and nears a, a, a fresh start in a sense and a continuing on of the mission that God had given him in another even in the face of, faith, of opposition and attack, God had been good to him. In 4-5, if you look back, just a verse, um, and, and the, in the first five verses actually of chapter 4 and what we looked at last week, we saw Paul commissioning Timothy really with what have become the words of ordination. Remember I spoke about that last week, that these are the words preach the gospel, uh, become an, evan an evangelist, be an evangelist. And the last words in particular there in verse 5 that Paul said to Timothy, fulfill the work of ministry that God has called you to. Carry it out. F fulfill the work that God has called you to. And, and, and verses 1 through 5, this is clear charge, this clear commission from Paul to Timothy. But now, in order to to, to provide perhaps both a, a pattern to follow and a, the motivation needed to, to live it out, Paul shifts in the verses that we read into personal testimony, right? It, some of you have been a part of churches maybe in the past, and we used to do this a long time ago on Sunday nights, where it was testimony time. And some, when I was a kid growing up, I, we were in a big church, and they'd put microphones out on Sunday night, and if you saw the microphones out in the, in the aisleways, you knew, we're going to get some testimonies tonight. And I always thought, well, I guess my dad didn't have time to come up with a sermon, so uh, we're going to have testimonies tonight. Uh, um, and uh, sometimes that was the case here on Sunday night, so let's just be honest. <laughs> uh, but but so, all the testimonies, where people would stand up and say, God's been good to me. God's been, God saved me from sin. God saved me from a life that was just going nowhere. God brought me by His grace into His, His life eternal, and I'm living with this hope and with this promise today. Or, or times when people would stand up and say, you know what, my marriage was on the rocks, but God came and intervened and He changed things. Or my child was doing this, and God helped me to see my child in a new way. Or, or, or testimonies about work, or testimonies about other relationships or testimonies about finances, testimonies about parking spots that opened up beautifully as I drove into the parking lot. <laughs> testimonies, sharing about the goodness of God. And this is what Paul shifts into. It's like he shifts from being teacher and mentor and, and instructor to Timothy to being, I just got to tell you, Timothy, about my own life. I just got to tell you, and interestingly, people who do this sort of thing have counted, and there are 22 first-person pronouns in verses 6 through 18. Paul shifts from you, you, you to I, I, I. I have done this, and I have experienced this, and God has done this to me. And this testimony begins to just ring very clearly. And as he's making his appeal to Timothy... And as Paul is making his appeal to us, let's just get this very, very clear. 
This is personal for Paul. I hope, I hope you can somehow catch that this morning because so easily the pages and the words from Scripture can become so distant and far and like admirable and like, oh, isn't that poetic or so nice? But Paul has, as we've read, skin in the game. This is personal for Paul. It's not... Again, just this is a good idea. I think it would be great if you fulfilled the work of an evangelist in the ministry that God has called you to. No, it's fulfill the work God has called you to, Timothy. Here, grab the baton because, listen, this has been my experience. His life, as he says, what had been and was being still poured out like an offering, like a drink offering to God, and he wants to encourage Timothy by speaking of the things that he has done and speaking of the things that God has done and simply speaking of the faithfulness that he's observed. He'd fought the good fight. You hear the words. You're familiar with them, perhaps some of you. Paul wasn't boasting his fighting skills. He wasn't a boxer that we know of. He wasn't a, a grappler, a wrestler in the early Athens ancient Olympic games that we know of. More running illustrations then wrestling, we don't think he was much of a, a, a fighter except for his fighting skills in terms of his devotion to a noble cause. He had been a participant, Paul would say, in the most noble and most significant and most important fight any person could ever join, the mission of God. And he had remained committed to it Taking, I mean, just open up, if you have a Bible, not now again, but later, just open it up to the back or look up Paul's missionary journeys on the, online and just look at the maps and the lines and the, the places where he went and the people to whom he spoke and the crowds that he stood in front of and the persecution and the suffering and, and, the, and the mockery that he endured. And you can see just how, how committed he was to this fight. He had finished the race, he said. Not only have I fought the good fight, but I have finished the race. And this rings true with some more Paul, Pauline uh, imagery that we're familiar with from some of his other letters and writings throughout Scripture. This idea of living faithfully and pursuing the life of God, the, the, uh, a life of discipleship and discernment in terms of running a race. He had not steered off course. He had not been distracted by other pursuits. He had run this race. He had made it to the end. Sometimes, I don't know if you think about this, but I heard some pastors talking about this one time, and they were talking about just sometimes they, uh, they, they, they remind each other that the goal is just to make it to the end. <laughs> I mean, and, and how often, and they were talking particularly in the context of pastors who either burn out due to just overextension or who kind of fail out due to moral choices or other decisions or just kind of flame out due to just kind of giving too much of themselves and not being resourced continually. And they just said, they just remind, in fact, these guys, they had like a, a particular rule, like rule 39 or something, which didn't have any other reference other than to say, just make it to the end. Remember rule 39? It's like, just make it to the end. And Paul had done that. Think of the chances that he'd had to say, okay, I've done enough. That's good. Let me try something else for a while. But instead, he says, I have finished 
the race. And lastly, he wants Timothy to know that he had remained faithful. And, and this discussion of remaining faithful or of keeping the faith, as, as it says in other translations, and is, has that seeped into our everyday language, right? Keep the faith. Um, it could refer to a couple of things. His sustained own personal trust in Christ, as well as keeping the, the faith, like the, the orthodox doctrines of the Christian tradition. Paul had been a guardian of them. We know, especially in the circumstances with which he's, in which he's writing to, to Timothy, that the church of that day, you remember, they wanted to hear whatever their itching ears wanted to hear. They, they wanted doctrine that would suit them and not necessarily that was true and, and right. He could look back on his life confident, Paul could, as he writes here, that he had stayed true to all that God had called him to be, to all that God had called him to do. And but what's interesting and what we need to note very, very quickly is that while this is personal testimony and it's appropriate for, for Paul to speak of himself and to give of his example, um, what quickly becomes clear is that this ultimately wasn't about Paul. That at the foundation of Paul's life, at the foundation of all these things that he had just said about himself, all this, this, these beliefs and practices were, were two other very clear beliefs that come through in this passage that had given him a sense of confidence and assurance that had not only sustained him through some very difficult times, but had launched him, really, these two very powerful, essential, foundational beliefs and, and realities that had launched him into the level of obedience and mission that his life had displayed. So while this is a testimony without a doubt to Paul's faithfulness, it's ultimately about God's faithfulness. Verse 17, I think I have up here. Take a look at it with me real quick. Can you read this with me? But the Lord stood with me and gave me strength so that I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear. It's clear from this verse, one of the core beliefs that shaped Paul's ministry, gave him the, call, the, the confidence to carry it out. And you can leave that up, Darren, for a minute. Here is an expression of, of Paul's deep and clear confidence in the Lord that came from his experiences of the Lord standing by him and strengthening him in moments of difficulty, suffering, persecution, uncertainty, questioning, you name it, this powerful sense, this continual awareness that when Paul stood up or when Paul moved forward into mission on one of those lines of his missionary journeys, that whenever he took a step forward to, to keep the faith, to fight the good fight, to make it to the end, there was a clear sense in Paul's heart and his mind that the Lord stood there with him. Do we have this 
we have this confidence. I, you know, I played a lot of sports when I was in, in my childhood, and, and I'll never forget, my, my mom and dad, just they, they made an effort to get to as many of my games as they possibly could. And most of them, they were there. And I know that I, I'm, this isn't a, anything to say anything about any of us. I know we've got lots of stuff going on in our lives, and sometimes maybe you can make it to your kids' games, and sometimes you can't. But it was just sort of a priority that my, my parents had made. And I'll never forget one game in particular. I mean, seriously, they're all, it's all a big blur for the most part. It's all a big blur. But I remember this one game in particular. And if, I wish I had my dad here to tell the story because uh, they had pretty much told me, sorry, we're going to be on a trip, James, and it's a, I believe it was a playoff game. It's really clear to me, but I'm not completely sure about that fact. I, I believe it was a playoff basketball game. And uh, they had told me, we're really sorry, but we're going to be out of town on a trip, and we just don't think there's any way we can make it back in time to see that game. And so I had kind of proceeded with that expectation, and we were going into uh, a very, it is becoming clearer to me, actually, as I tell the story, because I'm sure it is a playoff game, and we were going into very, very hostile territory. And this particular team, uh, we had beaten them once, and they had beaten us once, and it was a playoff game, and it was going to be really hard. Um, and I had just got, it had been really bad before. It was going to be bad. Expecting that, anticipating that, but as we're starting the game, still no CJ and Sue in the stands. And I'm not expecting it. But somewhere in the first quarter, I look up behind the bench and I see my mom and dad sitting there. And my dad has like a suit on. You know, who wears a suit? to a high school basketball game. My dad had a suit on because that's what he'd been wearing all day in his meetings. And my mom had like a dress on. They looked like them. If you know it, <laughs> you know, if you know my parents, they just kind of looked like them just 30 years ago. Um, and I thought, man, you should have put on a different shirt, dad. No, I didn't think that. I thought, hey, you're here. And I would find out later after I had had a, pretty good game, but we lost by four points, and it was just a rough, rough, hard game. But I found out later the extent to which they had gone to get there, and the, the early flights that they had, the, the early departure from the meetings that they, that they had had to take, and the flights that they had had to change around, and the ride from the airport that they had had to rummage up, and the speed at which they drove from the airport to Pittsburgh, California, high school, and it, and it made, even, uh, made an even more significant impact on me. And it's funny, right? Because even as I tell that story, you can maybe kind of tell it makes a little bit of an impact on me, just to, to think about it, even now. There's just something about having your mom and dad in the stands. There's just something about this, not only that particular time, but the moment and just the the constant awareness that, you know, if they made that kind of effort there, then really I can kind of know that wherever I go, there's a sense in which my mom and dad are cheering me on and believing in me. Well, this is just a kind of small potatoes, kind of a 
really insignificant comparison to what Paul says about what the Lord Jesus has been and done for him. There's this sense that Paul has walked every step of his way. Every aspect of his mission has been lived out in this, in this constant realization and awareness of the reality that the Lord Jesus was standing with him. And this is, friends, a, a, a clear and significant um, uh, invitation for us to experience. Paul even says there in, in the previous verse, uh, when I went to my first uh, trial, everyone else deserted me. Right? Did you read, remember me reading that? And there's a sense that, that uh, and, and actually we didn't read it, but the, the verses in between 8 and 16 are a lot about some more people who are, I'm choosing to let them remain nameless today, who are named as people who deserted Paul. And uh, it's not good. It's not a good way to get your name in the Bible. Um, but, uh, but, but, but there's this sense that Paul was very, and he's, he's asking, bring me this, I'm alone, and, and he's in prison and, and, and deserted, and, and yet there's this very clear sense that Paul says, though I was on my own, I have no doubt that every step of the way, the Lord was standing with me. The Lord Jesus Christ is all over this life, <laughs> all over this passage. And we just need to, I've been reading some different prayers and things in recent weeks, but one particular prayer of just praying is just, it says something to the effect now of, of think often of the Lord and remember him regularly. Think often. Like, just stop in the middle of your day, and, or when things get really tight, and just stop and think that the Lord is present with you. And remember, it, the prayer goes on, that the one who called you and sends you is also the one who sustains you. This Lord Jesus who sent Paul out was not the one who said, good luck, Paul, hope that works out for you. He was the one who says, and I'm, by the way, I'll be there. And, and this core, essential reality, this core belief from which we might live our lives. It, it all comes down to this for Paul. He's like, you know what? Hey, if you forget everything else, remember this, Jesus is with you. And you can live this life in the strength that he provides. And then there's one other foundational hope that Paul comes back to at the very end. And it's just this hope that he makes clear in verse 8. We can look there, there and I think I have that and now the prize awaits me paul writes the crown of righteousness and again paul's making some athletic metaphors there or references analogies because the early ancient olympians and you've seen this in some of the olympic games when they win the gold medal or a medal and all they get the 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 wreath uh, uh branch wreath yeah that's it. Olive. Laurel. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? The, uh, sorry for appearing to not know what I'm talking about there. Uh, they receive this. Laurel. This crown. And this is what Paul is speaking of here. That someday he will receive this crown of righteousness. Someday soon. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. 
speaks of this in other places as well in the same in the same section uh, there in verse 17 and 18 down at the end he shifts now from this present reality of Jesus' presence to this future hope that he has of being in the presence of God forever. Righteousness, this crown, is, is not only, in other words, a present reality, but it's a future hope. And Paul knows that this fullness will come very soon to him. For Paul, the crown of righteousness will be that that sort of intrinsic, not necessarily a reward at this point, but a, a recognition. Because he didn't do all this in order just to get the reward. He, he's done all this as an expression of the, the grace that has transformed his life. Remember the picture that you saw a couple of times up here over the last couple of weeks when Paul laid stricken on the ground when the resurrected Lord Jesus appeared to him and called him into his ministry. Paul has done all of this, not in order to get a reward, but out of, out of obedience and faithfulness to this one who has called him. But now there will come a recognition, an awareness, a celebration of all that he has been and all that he has done when the righteous judge appears to grant this vindication to Paul's life. And Paul goes on to say, it's not only for me, but it's for all who wait for the Lord's appearing. We, uh, we too are motivated. We're, we're uh, invited to, to hear this reality. A couple weeks ago, I was at a pastor's prayer meeting and... Um, Ben Patterson, some of you know Ben, I've talked about this, this gathering from time to time, but he's the former retired chaplain now from Westmont, but he is, uh, he leads the, he still, he didn't retire from leading the pastor's prayer time, monthly prayer time, which is great. But he came into that prayer time this morning and typically just gives us some psalms and some words and says, all right, let's go, come on, let's pray. But this morning, that morning there was something that was clearly heavy on his heart and it was like this prayer time is personal for Ben. And he began to share about a passage that he'd been reading that very morning. And, and the Elaides live across the street from the Pattersons. And they know that Ben gets up real early to pray and to read the scriptures. I think Danny's told me that whenever he gets up early and thinks he's really done something important or impressive, Ben's light is always on in his study. And he began to recount this story from scripture that he just kind of bumped into that morning. A story from Luke chapter 10 where, uh, where Jesus had sent out his disciples. And I've, I've read this before, and you can take that one down there. And I've read this passage before and, and, and other places in the other Gospels where the same scene is sort of recounted. And Jesus is, is sending out his disciples. And, and Luke in particular is saying, hey, go here. I'm telling you to go here. Go two by two. Go out in these places. And and let me just tell you, it's probably not going to be that easy. And in fact, if people don't listen to you, then, you know, just leave. You can just turn around and walk away. And they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the one who sent you. And, 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 but, but just go. And, and just go. And, and share the message. And, 
and be an evangelist. Just like Paul was telling Timothy, go out and share the good news of what God is doing in me. And so these disciples went out, and Ben was sharing this story, the disciples went out, and, and actually, they met with some success. This is the, like, the, like the twist of this, it's the initial twist. There's always two, right? It's the initial twist of this plot, and they come back to Jesus, and, and there's been like nine verses of, it's really going to be hard. It's going to be bad, just don't, you know, Get ready to be rejected. And then verse, uh, verse 10 or 11 is like the disciples coming back to Jesus and they say, well, actually, Jesus, check it out. We have met with great success. Even, listen to this, Jesus, even the demons do what we tell them to do. And there you can see this. What has gone from like fear and worry about being rejected and what's that going to be like to like, you know, shake the dust off my feet and walk away to, to this experience actually of great victory and we, we've done it. And Jesus, I don't know what you did, but we, it's really working and the demons are doing exactly what we tell them to do. From great failure to great success. And I think Ben was drawn into it because that's a lot of the places where we live, right? If you're anything like the person next to you and me, we, we most often live from day to day with this sense of, man, that was terrible. I am so inadequate. How could I have been so dumb? Why didn't I think of that earlier? Why don't I have more ability in this particular area? Or you live on the opposite pole of being like, yeah, that worked out. Thanks be to God. I'm pretty good. He's using me, and, and, and that was successful, and my work is actually meaningful to me, and my wife and I are talking to each other, and... There's good things that are happening. and uh, Even the demons, if there were one around here, would probably do what I told it to do right now. And we live, I don't know if I'm just saying this, but they, we, we live here. And, and then Jesus comes back with this line that has just been haunting me for two weeks in a good way, for the most part. And it's this. 10.20, actually. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, ah, it's good, guys. It's good. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Amen, Jack. Jack's like, that's good. That's good. And it is good. Would you read that with me? But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. And when I read this passage from Paul and I thought back to that passage from a few weeks ago, I thought, thanks be to God, because here's an intertextual connection for your heart 
James and an intertextual connection for the people of God today because Paul had lived, he'd fought the good fight, <laughs> he'd kept the faith, he'd finished the race, he'd been all over the map. And when it came to the very end, he had this very clear recognition that, you know what, all along, as happy as I've been to be involved in the mission of God, and as much as I do it again a hundred times, what's, what's most important is not that the evil spirits obeyed or didn't obey me, but that my name is registered in heaven. So I invite you to take the baton and to be one who at your worst moment of failure this week, when you have dropped the baton in some other capacity of life, at your lowest point of, I can't believe that's me, to, to hold on to this greater reality. If you're a follower of Jesus today, that your name is registered in heaven. And, and the same is true in the opposite. It, at the point of your greatest success, when you're, when you're tempted to just pat yourself on the back all over the place and be like, yes, I scored that touchdown. You saw that, right? Uh, but, but to step back and say, this is awesome. This is good, absolutely. But you know what's even better? You know what this doesn't even actually come close to reaching in terms of greatness is the fact and the hope that, you know, Yes, I did, but my name is actually registered in heaven, and that's far, far better for me to know. And it's this constant, continual awareness that Jesus is with me right now, and, and coupled with this, this hope that, that, that my name is, is written there, and someday I'll be there for all eternity, that that undergirds and supports and strengthens in such a way that Paul says, Timothy, you hold on to that. Here's the baton. And church and people of God for generations to come, hold on to that hope, hold on to that reality, and keep on going. Stand firm on this foundation, and you will be and become all that God is inviting you to be. Let's stand together, can we? Worship team, come on up here. I just want to, I want to go ahead and let them uh, lead us in a song right now. And as we sing, I just want you to respond to the Lord. I don't know what it might look like today for you and what that response might look like. I don't know what... Uh, the Lord is doing in your own heart or what he might be stirring or what he needs to help correct. But maybe some people here this morning, even as we sing, you just need to be just reminded, just strongly brought to the forefront of your awareness that Jesus is with you. And maybe there's some others that just need to, need to give thanks to God, even as we sing that your name is registered in heaven. And that that gives a hope that goes beyond any failure or success that you might experience in this world. And maybe even there might be some people who are uncertain of either of those two realities that can be 
those beliefs that can be a reality in your life today. So if there's any uncertainty, maybe today would be a great day to say, Jesus, be with me. All the moments of my life, stand with me. Give me strength. And maybe there'd be some who would say, I have no idea what that even means to have my name registered in heaven. But Jesus, if that somehow means I need to say yes to you to get on that list, then let my word to you this morning be yes. 